Namaste. My name is Amog and this is the Amog Astra podcast. Today I have on my show Anvesh Satpati. He himself has a podcast on YouTube and a lot of times he has extremely interesting guests with some very unique viewpoints. Anvesh himself is a uh, has a lot of interest in philosophy, psychology and is currently pursuing his degree in political science. uh and today i intend to speak with him majorly on the topic of free speech and how different societies conceptualize free speech how we view it in india and also we will touch upon briefly on the recent uh, incident because of which free speech is a uh, is the issue that we are talking about so anvesh uh, i would like you to uh, introduce yourself uh, quickly uh, for the people who may not know you Yeah, well, I am uh, Anvesh Satpathy, and I'm primarily a writer. So I write things. Uh, I write on a wide range of issues, actually, uh, on of his, of course, psychology, philosophy, uh, occasionally politics, and um, I've written about free speech and music, cinema. So, so my range of uh, you know the things that I write about is very, uh, very wide. um apart from that i uh well i'm currently an undergraduate student and i aspire to be uh you know an academic so nice so uh, let me start with this itself so you mentioned that you're uh, uh, doing your undergraduate right now so and i uh, it is in political science right so what what attracted you to philosophy because you it seems to have a lot of influence on the way you think the way you speak the way you write and also a lot of guests on your own podcast so uh, what attracted you to philosophy in the first place well, i have always been interested in philosophy i've grown up uh, reading philosophy you know me pursuing a degree was just a matter of uh, you know of circumstances not exactly interest so okay. uh, but but philosophy is my primary interest and it derives from the fact that i've always been interested to know uh, why people think the way they think you know why you know in reasoning and argument and things like that i've always been interested to explore you know especially explore viewpoints that i disagree with because i find it you know more interesting to explore uh, how those viewpoints can be defended you know for instance i'm not a conservative but i read a lot of conservative philosophy i read a lot of anarchist philosophy so i'm always interested in you know just the the idea of engaging in good faith debate has always been very interesting to me and it's it's of course i want to arrive at the truth and it's possible a lot of times because i have changed my mind a lot okay. by reading different viewpoints yeah. so it's always i'm always open to the possibility of changing my mind and i'm in fact excited by it so i'm not exactly married to an particular idea i have nothing to lose if i give up that idea if i find it right. to be you know not commensurate with the truth so yeah that's it yeah there's this uh, actually it's a very unique trait i mean everyone talks about it but not everyone uh, you know really means it when when they say it and now uh, since twitter acts like the town square for everyone i've seen you tweet and i've seen you tweet extremely politely in all situations so no matter how anyone argues with you what point someone puts forth you try to engage with them in good faith it's not common at all 
and another thing that you just uh, mentioned right now was that you've always been interested in how people think how they arrive at these things and uh, corresponding to that you also like to um ch- i mean you would change your viewpoint if you are convinced by something else again that is something that makes you stand out which is which is why i wanted to uh you know uh, one of the reasons why i wanted to talk to a lot of people who think like this and uh, i th- thought that since i'm starting the podcast again after a long time i should start with you also suggested by uh, a friend we know on twitter but i did in fact want to talk to you because this is not the first time that i was introduced to your content i've been following it for a long time and this has been a good opportunity for me to uh, get your uh, get your views on these things and um, as long as we're talking about philosophy there's i've not read a lot of that in a lot of detail i've read a, a bits and pieces of it as if you uh, even i write a little bit on medium not as extensively as you and my range is very limited but i do write and uh, pursuing uh, a few of those topics i had started reading a little bit about philosophy a very small corner of philosophy about rights and liberties and freedoms and what not and uh, during that um, obviously if we start a deep dive in uh, that area so it's not possible that uh, we don't come across people who propound their own theories or like uh, right since uh, middle ages and all of that so people kind of give their own theories about what liberties are what rights people should have as opposed to whatever authority figure that they see that the government or the god or the king or whatever and uh, we, we have a lot of different places like uh, uh, there's a different way in which uh, freedoms and liberties are imagined in india different ways in europe in europe itself there are different uh, countries where the dynamics between the one in power and the one being ruled are different and because of that the rights take different or uh, these discussions these philosophical discussions take different routes so uh, can you let me know if you have uh, uh, come across some of these historical points of view on rights and liberties and some peculiar features if you notice them in your own reading uh why are you referring to any specific topic or you know like liberty in general yeah i mean uh, i i would like it if you spoke about liberty in general but i i imagine that that's a, a broad topic but uh, what i wanted to specific focus on was again free speech and the reason i choose that is because that topic is currently very hot in her uh, uh, discourse right now especially since the uh, a few remarks that uh, a bjp ex spokesperson uttered on tv and that has caused a humongous uproar and we see all sorts of opinions flying by so that is what I, that is where i was coming from and since see i'm not too much interested in discussing politics per se but what i am interested in is how we can think about free speech as an important tool for everyone not just in politics and all of that so for everyone should uh, at least have a good idea as to what the principle is if are there limits if there are limits what are those limits and uh, and pursuing that i want to know if you, uh, you have read something uh, in in the history of free speech where it came from how it started in in that sense i must yeah. essentially yeah yeah well that's a very broad question and i think that the history of free speech as an idea because we 
seem to conceptualize free speech as a, a sort of political right right and hmm. for much of history there's been monarchy so we don't have an objective criteria to measure if you know a particular society has a more free speech or less free speech yeah so uh one of the ways of measuring it are guessing let's say how if there was enough free speech is to see what society had the sort of debate tradition so for instance, the Greeks had debate tradition. You find, you know, offhand defenses of free speech. There's no exact uh, exhaustive detail of free speech because in most societies where free speech existed, people did not really think that they would have to like defend it. Hmm. So offhand references you find in many ancient Greek philosophical texts. And I think the Socratic method yeah. assumes in itself an opposing point of view no matter how ridiculous it is and it, it the debating tradition uh, and the sophists even the sophists mm -hmm. so you find such instances in almost every society you know there is this argument uh, that a lot of people make that uh, like abrahamic societies are actually less amenable to the idea of free speech than say indian mm. society yeah. but i don't think that that yes. is the case because you cannot concept you cannot reduce abrahamic societies to one thing you know there's been periods when abrahamic societies have been very good for free speech when there have been a explosion of intellectual ideas you know during the islamic golden age for instance they you have al-ghazali and even Rust Averas debating these completely different viewpoints, but they agreed that they had to debate these issues and not uh, restrict freedom itself. Uh, and you have examples even in yearly Islamic tradition, like uh, when you know there were this group of uh, Muslims called Kharijites who disassociated themselves after. Uh, Ali's Imam Ali's battle with Isa. So, you know, they demanded that Ali capture Isa as a prisoner of war. Ali refused to do so. So, you know, they became austere. They say that Ali and people in this realm have no right to issue judgments. So Ali was establishing at that time a sort of Islamic jurisprudence. So, uh, it's, so Ali sends Ibn Abbas, who is one of the companions of uh, the Prophet, respected by both Sunnis and Sias, and Ibn Abbas goes to the Kharijites, who are essentially ascetics, you know, living like uh, the modern-day Al-Qaeda people live in caves <laughs> and with uh, disheveled hair. But that's how they describe disheveled mm -hmm. hair and uh, ascetic uh, one-piece clothes and things like that. So Ibn Abbas goes and sits with them and has a long debate and those debates are like detailed in the Islamic text on uh, that they and he accuses them of being extremists mm -hmm. right so he literally says that like these are extremists these are not in the Muslim men's stream so the idea of their being extremist is present in the first iteration of Islamic stuff Okay. And the idea of debate is present in the first iteration of Islam. And then you come across Christian societies. Well, when 
it happens that when the church takes over, there is, of course, a repression of free speech, but that's not because it's essentially, uh, you know, say, theological matters. It's because whenever you have an institutional takeover, yeah. you will have a dogmatic belief. So I think that people, people assume that because some texts restrict free speech, that this is the fault of the texting itself, but they fail to see religion as a living idea. Yeah. So if many people believing it, then it means that there are a lot of interpretations and some of those interpretations are obviously pro-free speech. So I think in every societies, in most societies, there is a tradition of free speech, a tradition of open debate exists and you can find it even in like tribal societies uh the best example of that would be the example of kandya rong oh, uh, uh, kandya rong was a philosopher you know a, a wendat philosopher native american who oh. engaged who lived in the like 1600s I, I think and he engaged with the american uh you know explorers who were coming in not American, well. European explorers who were coming yeah. in. Uh, and he was engaging in lengthy debates with them, arguing that, you know, you're essentially critiquing the church, critiquing the fact that Europeans have these strict laws, critiquing the fact that Europeans are not allowed to mock their king, that because the Kondirons were allowed and it was encouraged to mock the person who was their chief. So he was saying that, you know, you don't understand freedom. So that existed even in multiple uh, tribal societies. Yeah. So the idea of free speech, I think, cannot be reduced to one society. It's not anyone's yeah. sort of birthright. I mm. think you can make an argument for speech, speech no matter what perspective you come from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a, I mean, that's a really good point that you make that uh, it's not really a birthright of any one particular uh, civilization, even though uh, some people may claim that. I mean, I've seen so several uh, European and American uh, politicians, especially, and especially conservative politicians who have claimed repeatedly that uh, their, their idea of free speech was sort of like the, the one idea of free speech and it exists uniquely in their lands. But it's interesting that you should mention that it it uh, uh, occurs in all places. Like even in India, we have had a long tradition of philosophical debates that go on among scholars, and uh, uh, it, it it how it ends and what happens after the debates and all of that it, it's secondary in nature. Even though that is important, it is secondary. But what is important is that that debate is held, and no one I mean uh, the, no one is allowed to take up arms just because they cannot win the debate or things like that. And I think uh, Salman Rushdie always uh, uses one example from Natya Shastra where uh, uh, there's a play going on somewhere and uh, the the Asuras are offended that their portrayal is done in, in a sort of uh, bad manner. So they are uh, shown in some negative light and then they try to approach uh, the stage to um, hurt the actors or something. And then uh, Indra, who is the king of gods, he stands up and says that on that stage, anyone has a right to say anything. And that is sort of the example that Salman Rushdie says. I have not uh, uh, read Ma Natya Shastra myself, nor have I heard anyone else use that argument. But at least that is what uh, I've heard uh, in, in, in uh, our philosophical traditions, Indian philosophical traditions as well. 
but now uh, i would like to come more near uh, where the issue start with india so pre independence india and even now we uh, we are sort we sort of inherited the common law tradition which comes from uh, britain and there is a british uh, imagination of what free speech is like i mean uh, there's an article that i have written uh, it it runs through it really quickly just to give an example uh, just to give a very brief idea to those who may not know uh, it starts with like the magna carta in 1215 and then several kings come and then they start censoring and then they start um, uh, suppressing people's speech and and this word censorship is actually used in the 17th century so um, uh, there's this uh, edict that was passed sometime in the 1640s uh, if i remember correctly that uh, if certain books go against the orthodoxy like you mentioned that in any place if uh, certain people gain the uh, gain political power or they gain institutional control then they immediately start clamping down on voices that they don't like so that's sort of what uh, always has happened and in this case in the 1640s what happened was uh, the censorship edict was passed so that they could ban a book before it was published we've seen examples of that in india as well and in 20th century india 21st century india that they've banned books before they were published and that was called censorship and against that uh, john milton gave a speech and it is famous as areopagitica i i'm i'm not sure if you have uh, read the speech itself but it it's actually uh, it it conceptualizes the right of people to speak to uh, truth to power in the real sense even though the power may not want to listen to it so uh, in in that sense and then we see that in 1689 the english bill of rights is passed and then but it takes a little time to come all the way to uh, it, its colonies and then in india and things like that so uh, and you again mentioned a lot of examples in islamic society as well so do you think there are uh, any surviving uh, versions of conceptualizations of free speech in different parts other than the um, anglo centric parts that we, we we can because we can understand english so we know how they express their thoughts about free speech but in places where different in different ways uh, these ideas were put forth have you come across that in reading that they have conceptualized yeah. in their own ways Yeah, well, I, I would say that I mean the idea of free speech as a political right, perhaps not. Okay. The idea to express opposing uh, viewpoints, the idea of debate, is present in all societies. I mean, um, Iqbal has written a uh, Muhammad Iqbal. He had mm-hmm. written a book, and it was written in. English, I forget the name, but he was essentially arguing for a rationalist version of Islam, where he mm-hmm. emphasizes on the need for debate. So uh, there's, of course, been the Hindu tradition, you know, Adi Sankaracharya's debate yeah. with Mandana Mista. There's, uh, in fact, if you go back to a lot of the Hindu text, uh, which claim to sort of summarize different viewpoints, so. ियलीफ इट सेल्फ एक्सिस्ट इन ऑल सोसाइटीज 
and I think if we would not, if we wouldn't have been colonized or something, we would have evolved our own way of free speech. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name, but you know, there, there was this prophet, uh, a Sufi saint in Senegal, who was a pacifist. And this was long before Gandhi. This was in 1923. And he was battling against French, uh, mm-hmm. French colonialism. He wrote extensively mm-hmm. uh, on the need of debate, on the need of pacifism. Mm-hmm. He was essentially a Gandhi before uh, Gandhi, Gandhi came into being. But yeah. we, don't, we don't really hear about it because, you know, history is complicated subject it's it's sort of written from the point of view of victors and mm. some people get undue um, publicity while others don't and i think that's the reason why our view of free speech well the language we use the yeah. principle itself is universal but the language we use uh, to defend it is of course European in nature. There's nothing wrong in it, but it's mm. important at the same time to acknowledge that you know these are not the first people to uh, you know discover free speech. The mm. tradition exists in different societies all over the world. Yeah, and then uh, pursuant to the same point, then when do you think it begins to sort of go downhill? That we, I mean, of course there are examples in uh, all societies like you mentioned. But there is this one very famous example of Socrates. You briefly mentioned the Socratic method. Socrates was uh, tried in Athens, uh, if I remember right, in Athens. And he was tried for corrupting the minds of youth. He was sentenced to death. And then uh, on the last day, he supposed to have uh, given a speech before he was uh, sentenced. Now, there are no direct records of the speech. But one of his disciples, Plato, uh, went back and wrote what he could recall. And he named it the apology of Socrates. Now, the meaning of apology is not the same that we know today. It was not that he said, sorry. He said the explanation of what Socrates meant is called the apology of Socrates. But that is like an example of um, uh, the society actually clamping down on free speech. And it happens almost everywhere. Now, it is a miracle that it has survived in a few places still, like uh, in the political sense, it has still survived. Uh, But then do we know when uh, these societies start sort of crystallizing and then they stop wanting to listen to alternative viewpoints? Because obviously, even though Islam has had a tradition of uh, debates, and in fact, some of them have even encouraged debates, but today, a lot of societies that we see, like there are 50 plus Islamic countries, and in no country is there any kind of, uh, uh, you know, like really free speech that is, uh, you know, uh, that fits any definition that we may give. In a lot of Asian countries, East Asian countries as well, we see very little, uh, you know, uh, we, we don't see uh, really good examples of free, uh, free speech being protected by law. There's only a, really a few countries where it is protected. So uh, why do we see this uh, uh, opposition against free speech? Well, there are multiple reasons, one of which is the rigidification of the state. Hmm. So uh, a dogmatic, overpowering state will, of course, want to clamp down on the rights of its citizens in order to protect its own power. Hmm. Second, uh, it has to do also with the mindset that a lot of societies have. And, you know, I I would say the collectivist mindset, Richard Hmm. Nisbet, a psychologist who I had on my show, well, he argues that 
some societies, some collectivist societies like the Chinese, let's say, mm-hmm. are more susceptible to the authoritarian mindset than individualist societies uh, like the Could you, could you uh, briefly Americans. give an example between, I mean, uh, give a difference uh, between like a collectivist mindset, what it is, and an individualistic mindset So for, for people who may not know? Well, a collectivist mindset emphasizes on collectivist values, of course, you know, religion, tradition, families, uh, the individualist mindset, you know, things of the world in terms of uh, its own, you know, the American sort of, all the values that the self-help books espouse in that Mm -hmm. merit, if you try, you can get it, you know, it's it's all up and you, you know, that's the American sort of dream. So uh, that is the best example, best difference between the collectivist ones. I would say that India is an example partly of that, but the best example would be Japanese societies and the Chinese societies. So those societies are more susceptible to authoritarianism, while Mm -hmm. societies like Canada and America are not. Even Russia is more susceptible to that sort of mindset. So I think it's it's both uh, which has led to the situation of free speech. Uh, of the sad, terrible situation that we are in, I think that uh, industrialized nation in generally societies which are industrialized societies, which are uh, so-called first world countries, are more likely to be permissive of free speech mm. compared to societies like India, because pre-industrial societies tend to resolve their issues through violence. And violence decreases as societies become industrialized. India is a partly industrialized nation. So obviously you would have, uh, you, you cannot expect in a society like India that, you know, all of these issues will be resolved in a sort of uh, legal, lawful manner. So you see people losing their minds over wards literally hmm. uh fighting and, and 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 things like that it's a dogmatic attitude it's a collectivist attitude yeah it's 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 the attitude of people it's mostly believed by people who are not in a well-off economic situation if you give them say option between do you want you know this person to die because he offended a profit or do you want a mercedes-benz they would all go for the mercedes-benz so if you have a situation an economically prosperous uh, society where everyone can strive and achieve that level of uh, wealth that level of social mobility then you will expect less violence in 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 those societies so so it is partly uh, the result of the fact that india is Hmm. partly still a feudal society. Yeah. But then, I mean, uh, it's interesting that you should mention two points there, that one of them is the collectivist mindset and the other thing is industrialization. Because if it were only industrialization, then I'm not sure why China would be so bad or some of the richer uh, Middle Eastern countries or West Asian countries would be so bad in terms of that. But then we see this uh, collectivist mindset creep mindset creep up. And... Um, now it's it's kind of very difficult to speak about it, except uh, uh, leaving out uh, religion as a as a big motivator for people. That owing to their religion, we see a lot of people, and not just Islam, but all all religions in in some way or the other. Uh, they they sort of uh, a, a, a sort of religious thinking makes people 
antagonistic towards free speech right and uh, do you think again that is because their collectivist mindset is telling them that no 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 it is important to protect your identity as a whatever religious person and therefore because of that we will not tolerate any uh, insults to say a religion or an important person a religion a, a god because of, uh, and and then they start to uh, de- uh, demand punishments for people who utter those words because uh, we see that even though there is a high gdp in a lot of uh, uh, middle eastern countries there is still a lot of uh, uh, kind of censorship or a lot of uh, restrictions on free speech so w- w- why do you think that is well i think it's partly because of that because of a version of religion that is you know antagonistic to free speech plus the fact that you know the current state of muslim community around the world uh there is a feeling of oneness that you don't see in a lot of other communities and mm-hmm. it's partly because of the fact that the muslim community is so widely populated and second that uh a lot of muslim countries are not really developed societies so it's it's com- both combined you know the mindset plus the fact that a lot of muslim communities are not as developed as it ought to be i think uh that this idea that you know you cannot offend uh you know that that muslims are prepared to literally lay down their lives for to yeah. defend their prophet or to lynch people hmm. so this comes from a centralized version of one single version of islam which a lot of sunni muslims seem to subscribe to hmm. around the world and it is dangerous because i don't see a lot of voices speaking up against it and those who are they tend to live in american societies they tend to live in westernized societies so hmm. their uh, sort of influence becomes minimal you know there's only so much you can do living in a western society you need mm. to change the minds if you want to change the mindset of most muslims you have to live amongst them and it's very hard to do that because on one hand you have the law which prevents you from expressing anything that goes contrary to the state interpretation mm. on the other hand you have a hostile people but the truth remains that those hostile people are not going to listen to people who are not muslims they're exactly. going to listen to people who are from the faith who are within the faith so it it's important upon the reformers of the faith those who uh, oppose these kind of ideas to you know draw a line to, to make it clear that look we don't agree with this we don't condone violence and you know not just like issue a public statement that it only walk goes so far it doesn't yeah. it, it's so if you issue a public statement you're speaking essentially to non muslims but you have to speak to the muslims you have to convince them that uh, and i think i know how to do that and the way to do that is to increase blasphemy so oh, a lot of people okay. would find this problematic but i think the way to do that is to increase blasphemy yeah. because look at look at american societies it's not like you find this mindset only with uh, you know the muslims you know we have Everyone, seen yeah. 
yeah i mean we have seen mohsin sekh for instance in 2014 was benched because he posted uh, something offensive allegedly offensive to hindu cause hmm. right so you see this in 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 a lot of societies mm-hmm. so the way to do that is to increase blasphemy because what that does it is it desensitizes you to mm. the fact that your god is inside that is a big deal yeah that if so if we keep pretending that you know it is a big deal then it will become a big deal but but look at like american societies you will never hear republicans talk about banning simpson even though simpson literally you know in every second episode parodies jesus and moses and yeah. you know the prophet or all of these societies because they have they have you know they have become habituated with that right yeah. so we haven't indian society hasn't become habituated with the fact that uh, you know insulting gods or insulting religions in fact our elites unlike the elites in the us you know you will see conservatives and uh, Rep- democrats republicans mm-hmm. and democrats both agree on the principle of free speech so you know the most conservative ju- judge in uh, united states antonin scalia scalia said that mm-hmm. uh, you know i free speech means you are al- allowed to burn the flag i may not like it but obviously it free speech legal free speech includes the right to burn the flag you will not expect that kind of statement in india from any you know mm-hmm. top five post from either of the parties yeah. right in fact you see someone who is highly educated uh, who stayed in the west for most of his life defend the fact that you know we are just not mature enough to uh, handle certain kind of free speech, like sasita approach yeah yeah sasita rur in his debate with like uh, christopher hitchens exactly made that point that you know we're not mature enough to handle the insult of the prophet or the insult of ram or, or things like that so yeah so uh, you were telling me about the debate between uh, shashi tharoor and christopher hitchens and how he said yeah, that is not mature i was making the point that our is simply not defending free speech unlike the elites in american societies or european societies so so we and i mean without that we cannot expect much i mean if the most educated section of our societies say that you know the limitation of free speech includes the right to not offend religion then we're in a terrible state and i'm hearing this from everywhere you know yeah. ever since the thing happened i hear this from literally phd students so uh wait a second i came across this tweet mm-hmm. uh from a phd candidate in sociology and it reads this is stark failure or perhaps refusal of indians to understand what the prophet means to muslim muslims across the world okay. for any muslims anywhere around the globe an insult to the prophet is beyond the threshold of tolerance <laughs> terming the response to arabs or muslim countries as a form of tribalism or even as a reflection of how muslims privilege religion over life is reductionist and a refusal to re- engage with muslims and rebel them with stereotypes without further ado this is bullshit and this is coming from a phd candidate in jade so our elites are saying to us that look 
you can do whatever you want but do not criticize the prophet because people are going to be insulted like why not it's like he is he may be someone's prophet is not my prophet yeah i i am an atheist and you know there are people who do not believe in that prophet and why shouldn't they be allowed to express their opinion exactly. you can say that it's you can disagree you can debate you can criticize you can do whatever but to say that you're not allowed to do that and to say that the kind of response that people are getting for criticizing the prophet is actually valid is is in the you know most honorable of words plain gossip yeah yeah i mean uh, you, you think about it that um they're citing an authority of their own to say that you are not allowed to say whatever uh, you're saying about the prophet and again i mean you mentioned that uh, he is not my prophet even if he were my prophet why should it stop me from saying these things i mean so okay so maybe something is to be said about the tone in which you say the words you choose whatever but even if someone uses the foulest of but, words but and the worst of tone the point is the point is of legality exactly doesn't matter what tone you use exactly and that's that should be legal you know no matter how offensive your tone is yeah yeah i mean if you really wanted a debate with a person then maybe you would choose your words a little carefully but that's no reason to disallow or ask for punishment for a for a word to be or for a set of words to be used for something that you hold high in regard and another thing i mean i like the fact that you said that the solution to this is more blasphemy i've heard other people say that as well i think uh, abhijit ayer mitra is one of those people who says that we need people to keep blaspheming again and again so that people get desensitized to the idea but again it comes down to the question of who bells the cat because the moment someone utters these okay so it's not even like the moment someone utters it's the moment someone comes into the spotlight for uttering such words they're done because we have, we have seen examples after examples of beheadings and lynchings of people who have uttered words against religious figures and this keeps happening so don't you think that the fear a society uh, feels from certain uh, rogue elements now i say rogue only because certain elements act on their uh, uh, desires to punish the people maybe a lot of uh, people are, uh, are feeling that way that this person should be punished or they should be put in jail but at least they are not acting on it but someone goes and behead someone like a kamlesh tiwari someone goes and lynches someone like i think you said mohsin sheik then th- these things happen these things happen a lot around us so do you think that the fear is the reason that uh, uh, a lot of people are not speaking up even though they should and what is the solution to that do you think this is where the state comes in it is the state's responsibility to protect its citizens if what they have said you know if they receive a death threat for what they have said you know so first thing that we have to do you know apart from the blasphemy thing is ensure that what you know offending religious figures or gods or whatever is actually legal and it is not legal in india in fact india's free speech laws are extremely fake and anyone who makes you know even if someone feels that they're offended if they the court you know the the speech the laws are vague enough to you know put that person in jail yeah right so what you what is you know at this point what we have to do is abolish certain sections of the law mm-hmm. 295a 
153A, they both of them have to completely go away, right? So the state, first, what the state needs to do is abolish these laws. Second, the state needs to take, you know, the stance that France takes. You know? Oh, okay. So, so France, you know, it defends all everyone who offends their religion. The yeah. Fra French prime minister stands up for them. Yeah. If you have the the backing of the entire country behind you, the backing of the entire government behind you, no one is going to harm you. Like it's going to be extremely rare. It's extremely rare in French societies to see the attack that happened in Charlie Hebdo. It's not, yeah. it doesn't happen every day. It's extremely rare in that society. And mm. India needs to, you know, approach, uh, take that approach and say that, say whatever you want. And if there are death threats, the state will protect you. Because the state protects people when there are death threats in other instances. In case, so why shouldn't it protect people who have offended religion? It, it exactly. makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we saw that in case of uh, the, the recent uh, uh, beheading of uh, Samuel Patti was his name, I think, uh, if I remember right. And when he was beheaded uh, for uh, showing uh, some cartoons by, I think, Charlie Hebdo itself in, in classrooms, then uh, one of the parents of the student or some guy uh, went and beheaded him. And the response of the French government was that the entire government stood behind that guy. Uh, the, uh, the uh, Samuel Petty, that is. And then they, uh, some of them, I think, even displayed the cartoons on big billboards and then all of that. So they are, they have a, um, a really sort of a militantly anti-religious, uh, 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 you know, uh, inclination when it comes to these things that they, if, if, if a religion says, don't do this, then they'll do that on purpose. And that is how they have desensitized their own society. It's, it's a, it's a really great way to, uh, you know, enforce the idea that none of uh, uh, none of anyone's uh, ideals are beyond question. So we will question them, and it will be actively encouraged. But the thing in India is, um, um, it's not just the government that uh, that just fails. I mean, we know that we are we are at a crunch of uh, state capacity. We we never we have never had state capacity to uh, deal with things that go on anywhere. So it, it's it's obviously partly the responsibility of the state to uh, curb any violence that has uh, that that is going to happen, but it fails at that. But again, there is also something to be said about a society that, you know, uh, holds some things in such high regard that they are going to, they are willing to go and rampage on streets, and they're, they're I mean uh, the sort of slogans that we see. I mean I'm I'm repeatedly talking about this issue is because it is fresh in in, in our minds. That there are repeatedly slogans where they are saying that the people who have offended any faith should be beheaded. And, and, and some people have also issued threats, but no action takes place against them. It's basically because of that, that the government is unwilling to um, um, act against these things. And, and then something that, that is completely out of my uh, realm of understanding is a few people actually asking Arab countries to intervene in an internal matter of India to, I don't know, do what the uh, reduce trade relations or do whatever, and then make India or, or rather uh, the government of India punish the people who have said these things. And that is how, I mean, it, it, if nothing else, then it reminds us of the, uh, of certain historical examples where uh, rulers who were living in India sent letters and invited rulers who were outside India to come and invade. This is this is exactly what it reminds a, a lot of us of. 
and 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 this is like uh, complaining to someone outside your house about what is going inside your house and that is something i completely i fail to understand that and such views are supported by uh, you you mentioned in your uh, previous response uh, a, a phd student in jnu so uh, like it was just an example but i'm i'm pretty sure that there are a lot of people who would agree with that now if yeah, there are blue check uh so called liberals literally defending that viewpoint yeah i mean if that is the case then i mean where are we supposed to have our uh, uh, people who speak truth to power come from and and since they are not able to do their jobs uh, i think we should do their jobs for them so can you define what free uh, the principle of free speech is if there are limits to free speech and if there are what are those limits to free speech uh, i mean can you uh, answer that the only limit to free speech is direct incitement to violence under clear and present danger direct incitement to violence simply inciting to violence is not enough to put someone in jail someone uh, writes differentiate between those two yeah 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 someone writes a book uh, and says you know suppose an anarchist or a communist writes a book and he says that you know the way to achieve a communist society is to overthrow the state through violent armed means mm-hmm. that person should not be jailed because that is not under clear and present danger on okay. the other hand if the same person is with a lot of people say a mob of people surrounding him and he's giving a speech and in that speech he says which specific target that you know we should say invade the rashtrapati bhavan and kill the you know president of india to achieve the communist society that that would be is direct and present you know that is violence and it's directed towards a specific uh, person a specific state so that person should of course be jailed mm-hmm. because there is a danger there that the people who are in that meeting will then actually go on to do their deeds because we know what happens in mobs we know that people when they're surrounded by uh, mobs they're not in their right senses yeah. so this is the only limitation to free speech that there should be no other limitations at all free speech i explicitly say because you know because when you say uh, this simply people will say, think that this is a mild sort of suggestions or whatever but to understand the implications of what i'm saying freedom of speech includes the right to burn the national flag yeah. includes the right to mock and offend religious gods and prophets and books and rituals and cultures everything freedom of speech includes the right to be racist includes the right to be a bigot yeah casteist so that also i mean our laws prevent that specifically yeah. because yeah, yeah. so it a... includes that as well you know i i understand the sort of reasoning behind it i understand why you know those laws came to be i uh, you know i'm capacitated compassionate enough to think but you boycott that you know those kind of bigots to social boycott you don't you don't do that to this exactly because you will always have bigots mm-hmm. you know if they don't ex- because i need to know who a bigot is 
because exactly. if i don't know then i i don't know who to avoid yeah so insidious bigotry is worse than explicit form of bigotry you know explicit form of bigotry you know who to avoid you know you know which person you shouldn't go to but insidious forms of bigotry take place in you know minute form of discrimination that are not cat that will never be caught so you right. don't want that to happen so yeah. if society that allows even bigots and racists to speak is actually a free society and i'll give you one example of how it actually works out so mm-hmm. in the in 2008 2008 2009 mm-hmm. the british national party in uh-huh. united kingdom you know yeah. became very popular yeah. so uh, nick griffin was the leader of the british national party then he was a you know open racist, racist. total racist the, the pn the bnp is if literally a fascist party and it's a descriptive fascist party it's not one of those party that you derogatory call fascists literally <laughs> a descriptive racist xenophobic fascist party mm. so nick griffin uh, in 2008 to 9 because there were a lot of issues when it comes to immigration and stuff they managed to gain a, a significant proportion of vote and they were around you know they were gaining uh, winning seats in elections Yeah. So what happened is Nick Griffin was invited to Question Hour mm-hmm. uh, to uh, uh, in BBC. A lot of people, liberal, well-meaning liberals and well-meaning uh, citizens of the United Kingdom, protested it because they said, you know, you shouldn't allow a bigot and a racist to come. So, but he was nevertheless he went to that. So they. our program lasted for an hour and he was completely destroyed he completely exposed himself and after that uh, appearance the british national party lost every single election after that yeah now it went from it went it was on a rising streak and then it went to complete zero simply because you allowed the bigot to speak now imagine if you had laws which prevented you know if a person like nick griffin to not speak his mind then you would not expect the same result thing what will happen is you will have him elected and then he will reveal his true colors when he is actually in the seat of power and you don't want that to happen exactly. you want to identify bigots and racists and you want to exclude them from society you want them to have the right to express their stupid opinions yeah yeah i mean that uh, that's a good example i've heard this before and it's a, it's an amazing example of exactly what happens when you let people speak people just reveal their uh, nonsense ideas and then and then uh, they can be correctly identified and rejected but that i think i mean um, it it involves a certain level of trust in the people of the nation right because uh, i mean i don't know if it only uh, uh, appears because everyone in britain has a vote because it's it's an electoral process so they could be voted out but since people saw what he was saying what that person was saying and then in their own minds they realized that this is not a uh, that this is not something that i want to reflect my uh, 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 political opinions as so i don't not going to vote him and then a lot of people just did that and they lost all the elections uh, after uh, his appearance on uh, question r so that 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 was possible because the people of britain were interested with the vote so there was a little trust in the society that when bigots speak they will be able to identify what is bigotry and what is not bigotry but what happens when uh, 
it it's it's more subtle what happens when uh, uh, it's not overt the bigotry what happens when there are intelligence def- intelligent defenses of the bigotry in that case even i mean um, uh, it, some people are uh, some people are really good at that that they are able to like the we we hear this uh, statement being thrown around that the moderate provides defense for the extremist but then even the, in that case their speeches i mean if we trust the people enough then they will decipher what is right and what is wrong and then they will act based on their own uh, uh, you know uh, their own free will because earlier what you had mentioned was uh, the difference between direct uh, call to action and a passive call to action right uh, uh, to violence that if you write a book and the book says that uh, there is supposed to be this violence and we are supposed to achieve our political goals through this violence then that is an a passive call but if there is a speech going on and the crowd is already inflamed and then the speaker says that you are you are to do all of this uh, all of these violent acts and uh, that will be for our political goals then that is a direct call to violence and that is not you know, something that is covered by free speech now i find that distinction very interesting it is because when we read a book or basically when we have time after we receive some uh, input from either a book or from a person and then we get time to reflect and after that if there is any action then that action is called premeditated it is not spontaneous anymore but places where <clears throat> someone speaks and there is a spontaneous eruption of violence and that is causally linked that is the limit of free speech I, and also i'm again very happy that you mentioned that you uh, burning of a flag also comes under free speech or free expression rather we may not like it we may not do it ourselves but if someone does that then that should not be punishable now because this is you spoke about 295a and 153a uh, in of the ipc so 295a is uh, hurting religious sentiments and 153a is uh, 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 promoting enmity between groups promoting enmity and yeah so these are the two uh, sections of the ipc but one more section of the ipc which is i mean when i talk about this on twitter i do not get positive responses from a lot of people who respond positively for 295a and 153a but there is one more section which is 124a which is sedition now that is also another uh, a big area of concern for me where it says that seditious speech or speech that goes against the government of india or rather the state of india not just the government because you can be critical of a government but you can't be critical of the state of india itself the country itself sedition says that that speech is punishable do you agree with that or not yeah uh, no i mean i of course think sedition is okay oh. and uh, it's ironic that the uh, you know the founding father of the bjp samaprasad mukherjee was the lone voice uh, in the parliament you know when everyone spoke out you know in favor of the first amendment and of sedition and everything it was samaprasad mukherjee who literally defended sedition yeah uh, uh, literally defended the abolition of sedition he wanted you know sedition to go he was he was extremely pro free speech and it is in the first yearly uh, bjp manifestos 1950s uh, i think 60s mm-hmm. uh, it, it, there was no bjp the bharatiya janasang manifesto the, the uh, you know it was explicitly written that the abolition of first amendment and sedition you know, these were in the manifesto itself mm-hmm. right so ironically it is now the bjp which is using sedition laws to put 
people in jail. The Congress used to do it earlier. The Congress put cartoonists in jail. It put uh, thousands, you know, uh, there was this protest, I forget where, where thousands of people were charged under sedition because they were protesting against uh, industrialization and losing their livelihood. So they they were all charged with sedition. Oh, this was I think the Tuticorin uh, uh, protests uh, in Tamil Nadu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think that I think Chidambaram was yes, the home minister at that time. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So all governments in India have used sedition to their advantage, and after 1950s, 60s, this debate was settled that you know sedition is going to stay. Uh, the laws restricting free speech is going to stay, which is which is the same because now we're in a situation where there's no turning back, where we see literally our elites defending these laws, our elites yeah. which have nothing, which is supposed to be anti-government, exactly, and which is supposed to stand up to truth uh, to power. You know, they will vaguely defend free speech in specific cases, but they will not defend the laws that enable the state to take such actions. So they will defend Munawar Faruqi, but they will not defend the fact that, you know, the, the abolition of the law which was used against him. Hmm. Uh, same with the case with UAPA and things like that. So our elites do not advocate for institutional reform. What they want is they want their side to sort of win. Exactly. Tomorrow, if they come to power, you know, they will be fine with people, jailing people, other people to jail under such uh, stupid laws. Yeah. So everyone in India is sort of a hypocrite <laughs> because uh, they, when it suits them, they will, uh, they will oppose certain laws. When it suits them, they will, there's no principle stance. You know, nobody in the right wing, you know, everybody is getting angry over the Nukul Sarma fiasco, none mm -hmm. of them are literally, you know, literally want the law to go away. Yeah. The, they want uh, to use the law for their own advantage. For those yes, who they want, speak against the shivling discovery in Ganwapi complex. Exactly. And the best example of that is, uh, you know, when Armin Nawabi, who is, uh, you know, in the atheist republic, so he mm -hmm. burned Quran and there was a lot of flag Cheering. Uh, against he, him. He got cheered by the online yeah. Hindutuvadis. Yeah, the online Hindutva Bajis cheered him and then he uh, started posting uh, cartoons of Hindu gods and then, yeah. you know, they got very angry. Oh my God, and, that was a uh, fiasco. The editor of that uh, magazine wrote a long piece, essentially uh, recycling the same arguments that the so-called woke people use in the American context. So her point was that, you know, we should be allowed, Hindus should be allowed to burn the Quran because Hindus are the oppressed ones. Oh, Hindus yeah. have been historically oppressed by the Muslims, so they should be allowed to burn the Quran, but uh, the uh, you know, Muslims are others. Yes, because uh, they have been the colonizers and you know, they're the oppressors. And you know, This is the exact same arguments that people, you know, the uh, maniacal left uses in the United States context, you know, which in other contexts you would expect conservative society to not use that argument, but they recycle the exact same arguments to defend their point of view. So you cannot have it both ways. I mean, either you have, you have to be principled either way, either you want laws which restrict 
offense against all religions or you want or you don't want laws that you know restrict such speech you know you mm-hmm. have to take a side yeah but in the indian context nobody is taking a principal side everybody is playing this sort of short term game mm-hmm. so you know they want the status quo to continue so i don't see how in this context we are going to have you know these laws abolished it's going to come only the only hope is from the judiciary i don't think that if the, these laws go away tomorrow people are going to outrage over them or whatever you know they'll have better things to do most people do not care about these laws if these laws go away tomorrow nobody is going to outrage over it except maybe on twitter so yeah. because mean, free speech is mm-hmm. not that important of an issue in india if you take these laws away for, for the common man Hmm. they won't care they won't know what happened you know, they they they'll they go on with their lives and i think people underestimate that yeah i mean this is a uh, it's it's really a problem that uh, there's very few people really and almost none of them belonging to any political party that is a serious contender for uh, elections anywhere in india that holds a really principled stance there are very few people and most of them only comment on politics they are not an active part of politics and then there's people like you people like me who who keep talking about it but ultimately wield very little power so all that we can do is actually convince more people that this is what it should be and this is what it is and uh, there should be some action about it and and i'm happy that you pin your hopes on the judiciary i myself i'm not that optimistic but uh, there's one thing that uh, i heard uh, uh, one uh, a very interesting perspective with respect to this about how to uh, sort of uh, try to improve the situation of uh, free speech in india so i mean this is what uh, i was uh, coming towards the, uh, the last part i want to know is how you think uh, actually we could create a situation where these laws uh ipc sections 153a 295a or 124a how we could get rid of them so uh, one of the arguments that i heard was to file so many 295a cases in courts i mean strategically to f- find examples because i'm sure that there are hundreds of examples cre- being created every day on which 295a can be uh, filed and file so many cases that the court has to uh you know take a stand on this that whether or not these laws should exist in the first place because offending is very easy or rather getting offended is also very easy so you can just say certain things because uh on twitter i am not sure if you uh, you visit the same dark corners of twitter that i do if you go to the comment section of any person who speaks about any religion may be hindus may be muslims whatever if you go to the comment section you see that there are hundreds of people who post comments just to get a rise out of the uh, person who has uh, posted the original tweet so the, the i've seen horrible cartoons about hindu gods and goddesses i've seen horrible cartoons about uh, uh, the prophet and uh, people surrounding the prophet weird interpretations of verses of uh, their holy books and what not so i'm sure that there are hundreds and thousands of examples so the idea was to file so many cases that the court itself has to make a decision that whether or not we should continue with these things because none of this actually incites violence violence is violence only takes place when uh, when something blows out of proportion so otherwise it just kind of goes under the radar 
So that was one of the ideas. I'm not sure if you agree with it or not. But uh, what I would like to know from you is, and this is, uh, I mean, I, I'll close with these uh, uh, these last few uh, statements. I what I would like from you is what we as like general people who don't have really much to do with politics should do about whatever raising awareness about free speech and whatnot among people. And what do you think is is a way in which we could ensure that these uh, 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 these laws are actually taken uh, i mean these laws are considered and thrown away what do you think well uh, i think the that? first thing that we can do is first pick up against it you know there are not enough people in the indian elite in the indian intelligentsia mm -hmm. who are speaking up against it so speaking up against it in itself is a very good step second is to make good art because nothing convinces people like good art. So make uh, good movies, write books, make the point across that free speech is important, mock religions, mock different <laughs> gods. So, uh, you know, do blasphemy, whatever. Convince people that this is not a big deal. Convince people that, you know, it's okay to laugh at yourself, that, you know, nothing is going to change if you laugh at yourself or, you know, just shrug off and go your own way. You don't have to outrage about everything. Uh, third is, uh, I, I think when it comes to the judiciary, the judiciary has in the past, this case of judiciary when it comes to free speech has been ambivalent at best. At times it has throttled free speech, but there are many cases where the judiciary essentially given the same judgment that uh, other people give, which is that if there's no clear and present danger, then you cannot jail a person. There are multiple mm. cases of high court judgments uh, giving such peace. Mm. Before the introduction of First Amendment, in fact, the judiciary was of the view that absolute freedom of speech should be allowed. So the multiple instances of the judiciary essentially standing up for the standard of free speech that you see in uh, American societies and probably because they base their laws on a lot of laws which are made in the American societies. So they're more educated, perhaps they have more open view, I don't know. But politicians, I don't expect much from politicians. It has to come from judiciary, it has to come from society. Uh, politicians will not do this. Uh, and they will not do this because it benefits them. It's as simple yeah. as that. You know, Correct. you want you want to arrest people who speak up against you. You don't want you want to remain in power. And the way to do that is to, to throttle free speech. So I think we have come a long way. The first, you know, I I'm sure that the people who introduced the First Amendment did not foresee this mm -hmm. because the First Amendment was not introduced to throttle free speech per se. It was introduced to for administrative convenience. You know, that was the argument that Nehru was giving. That was the argument that Ambedkar was giving because they were not able to implement the uh, Jamindari reforms and there were a lot of oppositions and media was writing this and people were getting confused. And so they thought, you know, if they have some control over narrative, maybe they can you know, it will be easier for them to function in this way. So I don't, I don't think the founding fathers foresaw this. The only one who did was, of course, uh, Samaprasad Mukherjee. He knew what this would come to, and he was, you know, exactly right on this point. So I think uh, 
this is what we have to do write books make good art raise your voice stand up for free speech on social media platforms right convince more people that this is not a good thing expose them to uh, other forms of art which offend such religion you know so if you make if you expose people to uh, to art of different uh, religion different uh, points different historical periods then you're more likely to convince them because they will be more because they will be more open minded simply mm-hmm. now we have depictions of prophet uh which are respectable depictions of prophet in the ottoman empire in uh the 16th century 15th mm-hmm. century 11th century during those times we have a lot of depictions of prophet we literally have paintings of the prophet oh of, of, during that time mm-hmm. uh and, and these were made by muslims these were made by people who uh respected the prophet who you know the ottoman empire is considered to be uh you know the, the most the respected yeah yeah, yeah. so this is during that time so if they can do it why can't you so i think that it's time for us to as a society you know as in in as indian simply you know put an end to this so because we have more lot more things to worry about and this is not something that we want to waste our time in you know yeah. give people the liberty to do say and be what they want to be uh, because we have to worry about economic conditions we have to worry about we're not we're still not able to provide to our people uh, proper food and clothing and shelter and at this time when we're debating free speech it should be the same on this government because this government all of the government Uh, in india since 1947 have failed to protect the right of the people to express themselves have failed to protect liberty and it is up to them to make amends and you know come to their senses yeah yeah i mean i i would agree with most of what you said and i mean the, the only place i disagree is uh, that maybe nehru and ambedkar did not foresee this coming but i think with their education i can i cannot accept that because they had to see the track record of what what censorship does but whatever so i mean that that portion i definitely agree that uh, people should raise their voice and art the biggest thing is about art that there should be art that transgresses boundaries that de- deliberately crosses lines and makes people see what uh, other societies do and how other societies handle these issues and uh, again we we uh, it's it's also on us to convince more and more people to um, you know to let them know that offense taking is not something to be proud of and free speech is a principle that is absolutely essential it comes before any other principle so in order to rationalize any of your other positions the first thing you need is free speech that is what we need to convince other people and with that uh, i think it's the end of our discussion now uh, you can follow anvesh on social media on twitter i'll leave his handle uh, in the description i'll leave his uh, uh, medium page also in the description and his uh, and a link to his own podcast on youtube and uh, that will be all from my side you can like this video if you like my content and if you would like to see uh, more such conversations please subscribe to my channel the uh, mogastra podcast and thank you namaste